The Process, a podcast about creativity and experimental music. In the world of experimental music, outcomes and accolades for creators can be uncertain and at times seem far and few between. Therefore, creators and practitioners of experimental music must embrace the one thing they will always have complete control over, the process. This podcast aims to understand this creative process by listening to new works and discussing them with their creators. Each episode focuses on one creator and their music. Understanding how and why they create can inform aspiring creatives and help audiences better understand and navigate experimental music. I'm Dr. Doug Bielmeyer, and I'll be your host as we explore the world of experimental music, creativity, and the human need to find purpose in their world and lives. This is The Process. Music of Curtis K. Hughes is characterized by its rhythmic relentlessness, its harmonic adventurousness, and its often volatile mix of diverse stylistic elements and political subtexts. It has also been described as fiery in the New York Times and insidiously spiky in Fanfare magazine. As a Boston-based composer, Curtis has collaborated with many local organizations, including Guerrilla Opera, Transient Canvas, Boston Music Aviva, New Gallery Concert Series, Semiosis Quartet, and more. And his music has also been widely played internationally, from Los Angeles to Berlin. Recordings of his music on the Albany, New Focus Avi, and Couchmere labels are available at all major online music retailers. These works include ones composed for the Firebird Ensemble, as well as the 2009 chamber opera, Say It Ain't So, Joe, which centers on the 2008 vice presidential debate between Sarah Palin and Joe Biden. He has been on the composition faculty of the Boston Conservatory since 2008 and has served as composer in residence for the Radius Ensemble and Collage New Music. there was more consistency to how the creative process begin, begins in, in general for me. Mm-hmm. It would certainly be a lot easier if I knew how to start a new piece. Um, 
usually a lot of brainstorming at the piano and on paper. I find that if I do just one, then I come up with certain kinds of ideas that are maybe too comfortable and I need to mix it up in order to uh, encounter ideas that seem fresh to me. I guess I would also say that one thing that's very consistent is that the process is very nonlinear for me. Sure. I always want to start by writing the beginning of a piece of music. Right. <laughs> um, but what I first write is seldom the very beginning. Mm -hmm. In fact, I often don't know what order sort of musical events are going to happen in until quite far into the process. Mm -hmm. it, so there's a lot of connect the dots, you know, here's a landmark, here's another landmark. Yeah. Uh, how am I musically going to make these things make sense together or not make sense together in a way that's interesting and, and satisfying to me. <laughs> so if somebody said a gun to your head, go compose something, would you reach for the piano first? Is uh, if under tight time constraints, <laughs> yes. Um, uh, but I, I'm, I'm happy composing at a desk in total silence mm. as well. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, but there are different kinds of, of uh, there's a different kind of energy I get from being at an instrument. I tend to think I write more rhythmically um, interesting music when I'm at an instrument. So what's usually the impetus for writing something? What are the things that inspire you? Um, often the specific people that I want to collaborate with, uh, getting really fired up about the idea of working with somebody that either I've worked with before and I'm excited and ab about, you know, some aspect of their musicality that maybe I can tap into that I haven't done before, or maybe somebody, somebody new and I'm trying to learn about them and trying to learn what music might be exciting for them to play. Uh, other times... I mean, I just mess around at the piano all the time and throw ideas down on paper in a very, very haphazard way mm -hmm. uh, when something exciting uh, comes up. And sometimes I never revisit that. Sometimes it might blossom into a composition later on. So you said uh, there's nonlinearity in at least the part that you're writing and where it will end up in the final piece. Is the time in which you compose, is that a very linear thing? Do you have a very specific time or times when you compose throughout the day? Are you that organized? <laughs> ah, okay. I would love to be, and <laughs> yes, yes. under certain circumstances, I, I am. Mm -hmm. I've, I, I can, uh, I've got that discipline. I can summon it, summon it when I'm under the gun, yeah. <laughs> when I'm under deadline and I need to. For me, it's been a 20-year, roughly, experiment with trying to balance uh, teaching and family and composing. Mm -hmm. And I haven't yet really figured it out in a consistent yeah. way. Sure. Um, so um, there's been a lot of continuous adjustment. When you have a tight turnaround and a deadline, sometimes that simplifies things. And then you, you know, <laughs> scheduling the day in a way that just guarantees that the music will get written is something that uh, certainly has generated a lot of uh, uh, productivity for me over the years. Um, but I prefer not to be under yeah. uh, uh, what feels like a stressful deadline.
talking about a piece like Merger, can you tell us a little bit about the process specifically for creating Merger? How did, how did it all begin? Uh, who were the musicians involved? Sentient Robots, I believe, is, is, is the group that it was written for. But I should say it wasn't written for Sentient Robots. Actually, it was written, written originally for my colleagues at Boston Conservatory, Rhonda Ryder and Andrew Mark. Uh, but Rhonda had an injury and okay. uh, uh, couldn't play the piece. Um, so it's actually been played by a number of different duos. But Ben and Bree, the members of Sentient Robots, they are the musicians who have dwelt with the music the longest. You know, they've um, performed it uh, quite a number of times. Did this start as a two cello idea? It did. Uh, So the piece is a real Frankenstein monster. It was originally a much shorter piece for two cellos that I wrote, I think, in 2005. It was a gift uh, to two cellists that I I knew. They never played it. Uh, I was then commissioned by Boston Conservatory and Berkeley to compose a piece celebrating the merger of the two institutions. And they were looking for pieces for two cellos. And first I said, well, this one's never been premiered. How about this? And I was told, no, it needs to be a brand new piece and it can't be that old piece. So my solution, which they accepted, was to offer to withdraw the old piece sort of from my catalog as and to basically cannibalize it and to make it into something new. Right away, I had these landmarks laid out for me, which, which were bits of the old piece that I was sort of put into place. And then the rest of composing the piece, which wound up being very, very time consuming, much more time consuming than it would have been if I'd started from scratch. Sure, yeah, Because yeah. <laughs> I was trying to reconnect with the composer I had been in 2005. I see. Um, and the rest, the rest of the piece was really connecting the dots. So. I'm glad if if you have that sense when you're listening to the piece that somehow, even from the beginning, the music knows where it's headed in a certain way, or at least it has some uh, sense of implied direction about it from the beginning. It's a lot of stop and start, but but certainly there's momentum as well. What was the subtext then of this idea and this thought? What was the narrative of the merger in this piece and its relationship to the subject matter? Well, technically, there's a thing that I tried to implement in the piece that was very specific, which was that I, I had a, sort of a structural polyrhythm going the whole time. Sure. A collection of different uh, but close speeds, uh, sort of closely related speeds b- between the two cellos. Um, it's sort of outlined at the very beginning of the piece, right. and then it sort of disappears into the background uh, a lot of the time. Almost as though these are two independent mechanisms that, are calibrated very, very differently, and yet they're playing at the same time, and they have to find convergence. They have to find a way to synchronize or agree or you know come into harmony, which is not an easy thing to do. <laughs> and uh, so the piece is, I, one version of the narrative of the piece is that it's about that struggle, uh, which in a way is a very mechanical thing, but also potentially a very emotionally fraught thing. Um, there's some beauty and there's some pain in there and maybe a little bit of a hint at the end that it's not, um, a complete merger. (laughs) But there are these really fantastic arrival points within the piece. There's pauses, as you mentioned, but these sort of double stop sections where those get more and more sort of robust as the piece goes on. That's great to hear such a close listening. I'm glad, I'm glad you picked up on all of that. Well, that's what you, if a another composer detail. listens to your music, that's, yeah. I just didn't say it. You have some, <laughs> you're dealing with some interesting sonorities there, right? Yeah. 
most of the time I can't get very far with composing a piece of music if I'm not thinking about the people that I'm, that are going to play it. Sure. Uh, and I really, really, uh, I'll draw, I'm, I can't draw, but I'll draw a little picture of, mm. you know, people playing their instruments <laughs> and I'll look at that while I'm composing and I'm actually, you know, I'm really thinking about their physical actions and, and thinking about who they are and, and what excites them to play. And that's, you know, a big spur to my creativity. But I'm also thinking about um, who's going to be listening and what might their experience be. And I uh, vacillate constantly between different versions of trying to over analyze what I think the listener listeners experience might be. Sure. <laughs> um, and imagining that I can predict that more than I actually can. <laughs> yep. And then also sort of hope, getting really hopeful about the idea that, okay, that's going to be a much more wide ranging and unpredictable thing. Um, both of those things are exciting to me, but I am like many composers, something of a control freak. So I like to kid myself that I can predict that better than I can. So that's a big part. So do you find yourself though, however, when you are writing for a specific instrument or even in this case, as you were mentioning specific instrumentalists, so not just, you know, a bassoon player, but this specific bassoon player, do you find that sometimes limiting that it is this person or it is this instrument? Is that, do you ever, do you ever feel encumbered by that? Occasionally, uh, I think one of the reasons I feel less and less encumbered by that sort of thing through experience is that there have been so many occasions where I've written with somebody very specific in mind, mm -hmm. and that has not wound up being the person or people who actually champion the piece. Yeah. And so it's somebody else's take on it that winds up being the most meaningful to me, uh, just often for logistical reasons. And I, I, what I really find is that having had a person in mind doesn't mean that I'm limiting it to that person. I, I know composers who certainly work so closely with a performer that they they zero in on the extended techniques that a particular performer is really, really accomplished with sure. and really, really tailoring, tailoring a piece to a, a, a an individual's unique um, skills and peculiarities. Right. I don't actually do that very much. I'm much more thinking in a, in a sort of vague, vague, abstract sense about the person so that I'm surprised to hear another person's, you know, investing it with their own personality um, in a good way. Uh, so it doesn't feel like a trap. And what is that take? You say, you know, another musician may have a different take. Is that something where they're just not playing the rhythms you wrote or is it a stylistic <laughs> thing? Uh, I mean, usually it doesn't have to do with accuracy or inaccuracy. <laughs> Although I, I am very interested in notating rhythms that sometimes look a little complicated on the page, but should sound very spontaneous. And so sometimes a performer will pick up on that and sort of immediately intuit uh, what level of flexibility they've got in interpreting the rhythm. And that's a magical thing when that happens. Sure. But also I, I like being very precise with notation. I, I don't think I'm a micromanager, but I like to put in a lot of uh, dynamic and articulation markings. And one of the things I like about them is that unlike notes and rhythms, they're not very objective. You know, people really don't generally mean understand or agree upon what a tenuto mark is, for instance, sure. you know, sure. um, what it does mean is that they'll differentiate. You know, if there are a lot of markings in a score, people will do a lot of things and make a lot of nuanced changes and, and distinctions between different notes. And even if those aren't exactly what I imagined they would be, the, you know, it's my markings on the page are helping to make that happen. 
and yet I'm being surprised. And that's a really good feeling. So do you think that it's more often than not? Is that part of maybe your creative process is to have something performed and have interpretation? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I don't know if a piece is any good until it's been performed a couple of times sure. at least, you know. Sure. Um, I mean, there, there are pieces I've written that I've dismissed as, you know, failures essentially until they've found until the music has found its way into the right hands. So <laughs> what's a strategy that you've done to make sure that you're allowing that to be part of your process? Well, for me it was it was very difficult to get to the point where that became a healthy and reliable part of my process simply because I'm quite an introvert and sure. I take a long time to get to know people. It took me a long time professionally to build strong enough relationships with people where I, f I actually was being sort of fed creatively by those relationships and not just sort of imagining them. <laughs> and it can be very transactional um, too. It can be, uh, write us a piece, mm -hmm. here's your piece, there's the piece, you played it, great, thank you. And then return to the tower, the composition tower, right? Right, right. <laughs> um, so how do you find, how, how do you navigate that? You, you do have to fight that tendency in yourself to, mm -hmm. to just sort of isolate yourself from the rest of the world I think at times as, as a composer, I think being an introvert can be a really great thing for a composer. But for me, the, the solution is really simple, although it's not one that we can turn to right now, which is I just go to a lot of concerts, yeah. um, uh, you know, and, and sometimes I don't even wind up striking up conversations with people at mm -hmm. concerts, yeah. but, uh, but, you know, you see people, you come to recognize people, come, people come to recognize you at concerts in a way a lot of the concert scene is a, is a perfect social outlet for an introvert because <laughs> you've got, you know, a format that sort of is, right. <laughs> is recognizable um, and concerts that of course are creative with format and break from sort of classical music norms can be really wonderful for that too. Mm -hmm. uh, but that's the, that's the best thing that I've done to build relationships with people that inspire me as a composer is just a lot of concert going. Um, so I'm starving right now. <laughs> So let's talk about the word day job. And um, so this is Creative Cogitation 4.6. Do you believe a day job is helpful or hurtful to creator? I think that you're asking about how non-composition work fits into the life of a composer. The answer to me is that it has to, um, yeah, it one way or another. <laughs> um, you can't compose all the time. Um, sure. 
I guess the two categories of day job, maybe um, one would be, you know, a non-music day job, something that, um, uh, you know, uses a completely different part of your brain and your body and, uh, and then a job in music. And, and I've had both. It really, really varies according to the person. I learned early on uh, myself that I working a completely non-music related job uh, that was demanding uh, left me feeling uninspired and not able to compose in a happy way. Yeah. Um, whereas teaching music inspires me a great deal, even as it exhausts me. <laughs> yeah. Um, I really take a lot of inspiration from, from my students and have over the years. Um, uh, but at the same time, got all these other people's music in your heads, in your head. Sometimes you can't, <laughs> it's very hard to purge that and to yeah. actually get something done. So it's a help and a hurt. <laughs> Uh, if, if I could have a if I could have a day job, it would be uh, if it were viable to pay the bills. Something like stacking wood, you know, like something that <laughs> just enabled my mind to wander. Sure, yeah, and then yeah. that would be great. I, yeah, if if we don't consider teaching music to be a day job in that sense, um, yeah, it's very inspiring. I spend a, a lot of time feeling really thrilled after lessons with students. Um, about how, how I recognize the, the struggles that they may be going through or, or I recognize the differences and find those intriguing as well. Curtis, thanks so much for taking the time to share your music with us and uh, your opinions. So is there a way for people to find out more about your music and what you do? Yes, absolutely. Uh, if the goal is simply to listen, uh, there are uh, recordings available on all major uh, music streaming surf, uh, services. Of course, you can buy a CD. That's an option as well. My CDs are on sale at Amazon and CD Baby. I'll go to CD Baby first. <laughs> uh, but Apple Music and Spotify. Uh, uh, one clearinghouse for all such information is my website. That's curtiskhughes.com. have to have the middle initial in there so I don't get confused with the professional wrestler. Um, <laughs> but you can find links there to the music of mine that is available online and information about upcoming concerts when upcoming concerts are a thing that happens again. Um, the recording that you heard of Merger is going to be part of a forthcoming CD release. Uh, there will be eventually more news uh, about that on the website. The CD will be called Tulpa and um, you'll be able to hear that recording there in its entirety. Thanks to composer Curtis K. Hughes for his music, his time, and his insight into the creative process. If you enjoyed this episode, please like, subscribe, leave a comment on your preferred podcasting app. I'm Dr. Doug Bielmeyer, and this has been The Process. <laughs>